Welcome to Fat Guy Jack Guy. I'm Steph Rubino. And I'm Brendan Walsh. Get your American Apparel hoodie and your lensless glasses ready. So we're going back to the quote unquote indie sleaze era today. But before we do that, we have a little message for you. Please become a patron of Fat Guy Jack Guy by going to patreon.com backslash Fat Guy Jack Guy. For as little as $3 a month, you can join our community of patrons as they help us become full-time grifters. But also you get stuff too, like free bonus episodes and stickers and uh, merch and cool stuff. So do it. Do it. Fat Guy Jack Guy. I'm just going to jump into this preamble here, brother. Let's go. In January 2006, we were dreading the coming months. While most kids were counting down the days until graduation with excitement, my friends and I felt nothing but anxiety. We didn't know yet how threatening the end of high school and the beginning of college would be to the closeness of the little family we built together, but we had a feeling. How do you maintain friendships when you're hundreds of miles away while also trying to make connections with the people who will be around you every single day? I'm sure you guys, you and your crew felt a little, you guys were so close. Terrifying. Yeah. It wasn't that we didn't crave new experiences. In fact, it was quite the opposite. We wanted new experiences so badly that we didn't know how to square them with the old ones and it haunted us. When you're young and queer, you have reason to be worried that maybe once you leave a safe space, you'll never find one again. So we desperately tried not to think about it. Instead, we did what we normally did outside of school and our after-school jobs. Yeah, that's right. To our young listeners, we had after-school jobs back then. Can you believe it? (laughs) We got wasted and danced for hours at house parties. Then we went to Flanagan's to eat fries and sober up before going home. We went to shows and banged our bodies into each other and into strangers in the mosh pits. We went to the beach at night to drink beer and talk shit and make out. We watched movies together, either at someone's house or at the theater, and talked about them for days on end. We organized together, we took long drives, sometimes just to get out of our heads, other times to actually accomplish something. We tried our best to spend every moment we could doing things together without acting like it was the end of times. Though it often felt that way. Yeah. Obviously. And we watched a lot of MTV2 together. In fact, (laughs) it's hard for me to remember any time where we were just hanging out and MTV2 wasn't on in the background. It was pretty constant. Growing up in the 90s, I think we learned from our parents that keeping the TV on in the background for seemingly no reason was a normal thing to do. And so we'd always do it. But we also loved music, and we loved music videos. So it made sense to keep it on the one channel that played music, usually from one of the many flavors of rock that we were so into at the time, around the clock. Most of the time, we were talking, laughing, and crying over whatever my friend's family's blaring TV sets were playing. But sometimes when the conversation slowed down, or when we were just out of shit to say, Our eyes would drift to the TV, and we'd watch the videos and comment on their production and the production of the music videos together. 
It was in one of these exact moments when I first heard and saw the video for the Arctic Monkeys, I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor. If you're familiar with it, you know it's not much of a video at all. It's literally just the band playing live in a recording studio with some camera cuts between all the members of the band throughout the video. They're not dressed well or anything. They're just wearing the same clothes we often wore. Jeans and chinos with plain colored t-shirts and polo shirts. They weren't wearing fancy sneakers and they didn't have special haircuts. Really, it was just four normal looking guys with basic ass Fender Stratocasters and they didn't look that much older than us. Turns out they weren't, but that's not here nor there. Before they started playing, the band's lead singer, Alex Turner, says in a very strong British, British accent, which I didn't mind so much at the time. Now you're before your anti-British this is before, bias yes, really this is before my through. This is before I became Anglophobic. <laughs> he said, we're Arctic monkeys. This is, I bet you look good on the dance floor. Don't believe the hype. Hmm. And then... If you know the song, then you know what follows is a barrage of basic guitar chords put together masterfully and played aggressively and fast as hell. The drums follow the guitars at a faster tempo, with Alex Turner's now signature somewhat melodic talk singing floating just on top of everything else. Altogether, it makes for a uniquely tough-sounding song about trying to hit on a girl that isn't paying any attention to the speaker's advancements. Was it punk? Not exactly, but it wasn't not punk, you know? My friends and I didn't really know what to call it, but we knew we really loved it. And admittedly, we really liked some of the bands from whence Arctic Monkeys came. The bands who had a similar not-quite-punk, not-quite-post-punk, not-quite-garage-rock sound. I remember exactly where I was the first time I heard Franz Ferdinand's Take Me Out, for example, because it just blew my mind. Like many young people in the early 2000s, I thought the White Stripes fell in love with the girl was amazing because, first of all, I felt like I really got it in that teenage way where you think you understand everything. And second of all, the music video still rules. It ruled then and it rules now. But in the years before seeing Alex Turner and the boys on MTV2, we were anxious about being cool among the people we were often hanging out with, so we didn't talk about those bands very much. We just enjoyed them in secret on our own or occasionally together in moments of vulnerable admission where it felt as if we might burst at the seams if we didn't talk about this song we like so much. We didn't buy their albums, even if we did hope to see their videos pop up on TRL or on MTV2 sometime. If we heard their songs on the radio, we'd let them play through, but we weren't fans necessarily, just kind of like admiring them on the periphery. It was stupid as hell. But being a teenager is hard, and it's extremely fucked up. So like every group, other group of teenagers in the world, we did what we felt would make us less anxious about status. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't like the things that you like. No, you can't. Not openly. You can't, at all. It was such a weird thing, because you had things that you wanted to listen to. So many things. But you have to either go full irony with it, and it's mm -hmm. like, oh, you don't like this song? <laughs> Or you just have to have a secret like. <laughs> I remember being so nervous about liking certain songs. Oh, yeah. Because I had to publicly deride them. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. But you still, you can't like the things that you like. You got, yeah, you could not like the things that... I talked about this on a Patreon extra that we did about, like, our songs. Songs that meant a lot to us from, I think we did... 2006. 2006, yeah. yeah. 
that I would buy Mariah Carey, like I would go and buy Mariah Carey CDs at the CD store mm-hmm. and I would like hide them from yeah. people. Because if someone's like, going would, through your CD yeah, book. Like, you I would wanna... not put it in the CD book. Like I would put it in the back of my um, <laughs> glove compartment yeah. so that nobody could, nobody would ever know it was there, but it was there for me <laughs> when I wanted it. You yeah. know what I mean? Kids are so ridiculous. We're really stupid. Arctic Monkeys, though, they gave us a new in. Yes, they weren't punk, but they were closer. They had that attitude, that air of not giving a fuck, and they played their guitars loud as fuck. And isn't that punk enough? You don't have to talk about George W. Bush and the terrors of being American in every song to be punk, right? Surely, there were other things to make art about. And as we were all either 18 or on the verge of turning 18, we wanted something new. Something, maybe, that was speaking more to our personal turmoils at the time. We had been through heartache and heartbreak. We knew what it felt like to be rejected, to have a crush that goes nowhere, to be angry with the trajectory of our lives. The years that followed 9-11 were some of the most tumultuous and harrowing years of our lives up to that point, which we've talked about on this podcast a lot. But we were also growing up, figuring out who we wanted to be, trying to make our way into adulthood. In the four years we spent, we spent entrenched in it, we had grown very tired and weary of the punk scene. Many of us, especially the people I was closest to, had been through weird experiences. We never looked quite punk enough because we didn't have the money to spend on our outfits, which you find out very quickly that most of the kids who have money to spend on their outfits have money. Also, who's wearing those leather jackets in Florida? <sighs> it's crazy. Do they did do it. Yeah, man. Yeah. Leather jean jackets. It's, they're insane. We never got. It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable. We never got into real trouble. Some of the girls in my group had been harassed or assaulted. We acted like we had stuff to lose because we did, but a lot of other people we knew had various privileges that allowed them to act like they didn't. Like most scenes, punk wasn't all that had promised. It was still governed by a particular ethos and by particular ethics, and a lot of times, poor queer kids like us were just pushed to the margins of the scene even though everyone was saying they cared about us and what we went through. Ultimate gaslighting. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah you, you matter, but like, you really don't. That punk impulse to simply declare anything and everything perceived as quote-unquote mainstream or not worth our time was really starting to get kind of old. Especially for me. I was like, I'm tired of hiding that. I like Mariah Carey. Yeah, Why that's you when you really grow up. Why do you give a shit? You, you can know? love what you love. We didn't disagree that capitalism needed to be destroyed, but we definitely didn't think all mainstream and commercial art was useless. I think, most most importantly, our anger changed a lot. We were still outwardly angry at society, for sure, but we were sad, too, (laughs) and we needed an outlet for all of that. Something about Alex Turner's icy stage performance in that video spoke to that sadness, but it also made us want to dance. <laughs> so we started paying closer attention to the bands who had been becoming popular over the few years that preceded Arctic Monkeys' debut. We started listening to the Strokes more, and Interpol, the Von Bondies, Block Party, the Libertines, Modest Mouse, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, the Vines, TV on the Radio, and so many more. Some of these bands are still my favorite bands. Like I still love TV on the Radio and Block Party in particular. We didn't know it, but we were kind of enlisting ourselves into an era of music history that was about to be on a steady decline. In those last few months before our time together came to a close, though, we really committed. (laughs) And I really grew up in this moment. I became less afraid of what people thought of my taste in art and music and media, 
I didn't care if anyone thought I was cool or not anymore. And I think my friends had the same experience, so I'd have to like go back and ask them. Getting into these bands changed not only my taste in music, but my relationship to art forever. Most importantly for this podcast, though, it also helped birth a new era of trends that would take over the late aughts and the early 2000s. Good preamp. <laughs> so, all right, so I'm going to define the era. Part two. Let's go. Part two. Brendan does not way, have these same experiences. No, I, I am uh, coming into this very fresh, so if any listeners are also totally unclear on what's yes. about to happen, I mean, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm excited, though, because I know I... Listen to these things, but not to the extent that you did. Yeah. Um, I appreciated that music, but at the same time, it wasn't... A, yeah. You know, I was going through various phases myself. <laughs> music was like such a... I think it's hard to Can explain. Can you say it again? That's... Alexa heard me say music. Fucking ass. Bullshit. Ass. Alexa, don't talk. Bullshit. All right. Anyway, I'm gonna leave that in. <laughs> Music was, it's hard, so hard to explain because kids do not have this same experience as much anymore. I feel like music was like the center of our lives, my friends yeah. and I. Yeah, it determined a lot. Now it's, there's so much more of a visual medium and like a yes. snippet of songs. So like yes. people will like songs, but it doesn't take on the same culture it's bending properties. Yeah, yes. it's really not it's as It's not resonant. as resonant at all. And I think we have some, you know, we have, we're with younger people all the time. And I think we have some students who are really into one artist or another, like Taylor Swift or like Harry Styles or something. But that still does not have the same quality as like making mixed CDs for your, like painstakingly making mixed CDs like for your crush Mm -hmm. (laughs) or for your best friend. It also doesn't have the same quality as like going to the CD store and like listening to those little things to see if you want to buy that cd or whatever you know it doesn't have that that same quality there's something there was something about the pre like digital streaming music era that there was a closeness that we had that doesn't really exist anymore i think you had to sit with the music a lot more yeah and over and over and over again because you had a limited number of cds and most of those cds had (laughs) the same like few songs like made it into a lot of different cds and you would eventually also you know if you bought because we were buying whole albums at the time, too, where we bought the CD singles yeah. or the K-singles, because some of us still had tape decks in our cars, oh, yeah. so sometimes I bought K-singles. You would listen through that whole album a few times. You'd have to listen to that album a few times before you memorized all the places you wanted to skip anyway. Yeah, oh, yeah. You so you really, had to sit, you really had to like sit with it, and like there was a closeness there that doesn't exist anymore. So I think... I, you know, the reason why I wanted to do this episode was part of that. Like, there's just, there's less, I feel like millennials have that closeness still, but there's less so with Gen Z. Yeah. Anyways, part two, defining the era. And I'm going to call this, it has a lot of names. Like, when you Google it, it has a lot of names. I'm going to call this the music, particularly the music of the time. I'm going to call it the Garage Rock Revival. Because that's Mm -hmm. kind of like what, that's kind of the name they gave to all of these bands that came out around this time. I guess everyone listening is probably like, what the fuck is garage rock? And that's a great question. I was about to ask that. Yeah. Garage rock is kind of the precursor to the punk of the 1970s and 1980s. It was rock and roll with true rock and roll attitude. Chances are good that when you close your eyes and you imagine what rock and roll looks like, you probably don't necessarily immediately think of Elvis Presley anymore, though he did technically play rock and roll. 
when you think of rock and roll in both compositional style and actual like style and fashion sense, you probably think of bands like the Rolling Stones. And you wouldn't be too far off there, necessarily. The Rolling Stones were heavily influenced by the garage rock of this first period. The rock and roll of garage rock is stripped down, no frills rock and roll. <laughs> we're talking generally two guitars, lead and rhythm, bass, and a drummer. That's it. The compositional style is very basic, very raw, very energetic, and sometimes a little frantic. Also, they became really well known for like putting their music through fuzz boxes. You know how like guitars have pedals and stuff. Yeah. They were like really utilizing pedals at this time to make the sound, make the the sounds of the guitars, the sounds of the bass, sound a little bit more distorted, right? It's not happy music or sad music. It's mostly just excited about whatever it's addressing. You've heard garage rock in your life. You probably just wouldn't call it that. Garage rock, like punk, didn't require its players to be seasoned professionals. Often, the aggressive, stripped-down quality of the music was enough to hide its flaws, or sometimes it just reveled in them. In regards to style, garage rockers usually had shag haircuts and dressed in what we call now a kind of preppy style, so like chinos, button-down shirts, and Oxford shoes. You'd see the occasional leather jacket, but that wasn't like a hallmark of the style. It wasn't necessarily a particular style, but it stood out. You could tell the difference between the members of a garage rock band and the members of, a, of psychedelic rock bands or the popular rock bands of the period. Garage rock bands of this early period, the first period, so we're talking about the 1960s, didn't achieve much commercial or mainstream success. But some, like the Kingsmen, whose song Louie Louie, Everybody has heard pretty much at this point. And the Kinks had big hits internationally. This songwriting style and attitude was the foundation for the garage rock revival of the aughts. The start of this, the start of the garage rock revival actually occurs outside of the scope of this season, but the peak happens within the scope. So I'm not breaking any rules here, okay? In the few years between the end of grunge and the middle of the aughts, the rock music that dominated commercial radio and music television was mostly of the new metal variety. Oh, man. The worst <laughs> kind of music. Literally. Bands like Limp Bizkit, although I do love their cover of Faith, I cannot lie. It's good. It's good. Linkin Park, Korn, and Papa Roach didn't just <laughs> achieve com commercial success. They also gave birth to many unfortunate styles and fashion trends <laughs> that would come to haunt us for the rest of our days living on this earth. And continue to be worn by Guy Fieri. Uh, somehow, <laughs> Guy Fieri, but we love him, folks. We love so him we so much. Yeah, we love him so Honestly, much. Honestly, a person that dresses like, new metal now, I like them. The long jorts yeah. with the oversized t-shirt and like the weird shoes that always had a huge tongue. Yeah. Like the tongue was always so thick. It was a very particular look. You knew who these guys were. Also, they always looked fucking mean. Yeah. And they always had like backwards, no um, snapback hats. When I think of that, I think of like Daytona Beach. I feel like a That's lot of people... That's literally Daytona Beach. <laughs> yeah, I feel yeah. like everyone... No, you're Daytona like dead Beach. on. <laughs> you're like so dead on. Like yeah. every person under 25 who lives in Daytona Beach dresses like this. <laughs> if you're above 25, then you dress like a Harley Davidson fanatic. <laughs> That's it. There's only two looks in Daytona. You only are allowed to wear two styles. <laughs> There's only two okay. styles for men in Daytona. 
Getting back to the new metal, guys. Their songs were featured in movies and TV shows, on commercials, they were played at sporting events, and they even tried to revive Woodstock for exactly the kinds of people who listen to these kinds of bands. You guys have probably all seen the Woodstock documentary. Oh, fantastic. It's crazy. Woodstock 99, that is. Now, I'm not necessarily trying to criticize new metal, though I just did and said that I didn't like it because it sucks. But, <laughs> but even though that's true and I don't like it, I'm honestly just trying to paint a picture. Rock radio was kind of grim. It was either you were listening to genre-mashing rap in the stuff from the past. This is the context in which the garage rock revival begins. Everything was kind of stale and boring or just a little bit too over the top. There wasn't a movement in contemporary rock that hit like grunge did, where you had a bunch of different people with varying tastes and styles being into it. Rock right now, at this time, was cliquish and closed off, and there wasn't a lot of room to move around. Although the garage rock revival has its roots firmly in the rock music that was produced throughout the late 50s and 60s, its prominence was more of a reaction to the fact that there was very little variation in the rock music that was popular in the early 2000s. Where new metal and rap rock were trying to be experimental and trying to do different things with genre, the bands of Garage Rock Revival were more focused on a kind of rock authenticity, quote unquote, that directly incorporated elements of the traditional blues with the stripped down garage rock style. The bands included under the Revival umbrella were definitely influenced by the sounds of the 1970s and 1980s, especially when it comes to new wave and post-punk, but for the most part, they played guitar-driven rock and roll with basic chord structures, playful time signatures, and fuzzy melodies. I love how you said that. <laughs> you sound like a rock critic. Thank you. I've been working on this, yeah, you, you know? Yeah, you should be a rock I'm, critic. I love, I, you guys, I love music. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Somebody let me write more about music. Music historians and critics say that the garage rock revival period broke through commercially in 2001, which like I said, I know it's outside of the scope, but whatever. It broke through in 2001 with the release of the Strokes, Is This It? and the White Stripes, White Blood Cells. As has been historically the case with a lot of rock music, these two albums first charted high in the UK, even though both of the bands are from the US, and then charted decently in the US after that. They were lauded by critics. The Strokes, on their own, were called the, quote, forefathers of a bold new era in rock. And the White Stripes were touted... This is hard to read as a compliment, but they meant it that way. Uh -huh. The White Stripes were touted as the, quote, greatest band since the Sex Pistols. Wow, that's pretty intense. Pretty... It's like a weird compliment, because yeah. everybody knew the Sex Pistols couldn't play their instruments. No, they were just I, fucking up there banging on yeah, shit. And it was, was like, like, kind of yeah. melodic. Like, I don't know. They were whatever. iconic. I yeah, think, they were just yeah. iconic in the sense of, like, their personalities. And I would not say that, like, Jack and Meg White are iconic in that sense. You yeah. know what I'm saying? They're just definitely iconic because they know how to... They knew how to play their fucking instruments. People love these records, and these records launched these two bands in particular to immediate stardom. It's interesting, though, because in true rock and roll fashion, many critics were also very careful about their praises of the bands. They were quick to say something like, yeah, these guys are good, but don't believe the hype. They're not that good. Don't believe the hype became like a calling card for like the garage rock revival. And you'll see in a second. And one of the that's things why that, he said it. At the beginning that's why he of, said it. Yeah, okay. that's exactly why Alex Turner said it. 
I'm not sure if that was an attempt to relay some kind of messaging about the reviewer's coolness or an attempt to downplay whatever was going on with these bands at the time, but I do find this kind of measured criticism, and by measured, I mean the critic is like simultaneously trying to sound not too excited while also being excited at the same time, kind of a hallmark of the rock criticism of this period, which I'm sure also comes from a history of the same happening for bands who have been in the position that these bands were in. Reading the original review of The Strokes' Is This It, written by Ryan Schreiber in Pitchfork, is a good example of this. And listen, I'm going to talk about Pitchfork a couple times here. Okay. I know everybody has a... I'm just... This is for the music fans out there. Okay. I know everybody has a weird relationship with Pitchfork. Everybody's like, they're, they're, they're elitist, they're too highfalutin, whatever. Okay, I get it. But during this time, during the time of the garage rock revival during the time of quote unquote indie sleaze pitchfork was the website that is where you went to learn about cool bands that is where you went to hear people talk about either talk shit or praise the bands that you liked that's where you went so that was like the main source of like indie music information at the time Hmm. so and it still is like i feel like People, I still feel like Pitchfork is relevant. We just talk about it less. We all go onto that website. Like those of us who like care about this stuff, like we all go onto that website, but we don't like talk about it. Yeah. If I'm going to like read a music review, Pitchfork will be the first thing that comes up. Yeah. So let me give you just the beginning of this review by Ryan Schreiber in 2001. I don't know where Ryan is today, but if you're listening, buddy, thank you. (laughs) It starts like this. Hype. It's a bitch. Ascending mediocre bands to heights of unwarranted popularity and smacking the truly great down to critics' pet status, hype has become a plague on any band hoping to achieve unbridled adoration among music elitists. When the media hounds smell success and respond with their annual cry of saviors of rock and roll, disappointment is inevitable. So it goes with The Strokes, a band that's seen enough publicity in 2001 to make Bin Laden jealous. (laughs) Touted by the press as the forefathers of a bold new era in rock, the greatest rock band since the Rolling Stones, and the second coming of the Velvet Underground, The Strokes have nowhere to go but out of style. And the album only came out last week. So why all the fanfare? Are they really that good? Of fucking course not. There is no bold new era in rock. The Rolling Stones have yet to be contended with. And if there ever is a second coming of the Velvet Underground, they won't be doing second-rate imitations of Lou Reed, which is like a stretch to say that Julian Casablancas was doing that, but that's neither here nor there. The Strokes are not deities, nor are they brilliant, awe-inspiring, or genius. They're a rock band, plain and simple. And if you go into this record expecting nothing more than that, you'll probably be pretty pleased. See, while I can't agree with the Strokes' messianic treatment, I'd be lying if I said I thought Is This It was anything other than a great rock record. And he still gave them a 9.1. That was how it started, and he still gave them a 9.1. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting, because it has nothing to do with the music. No, not at all. He's just like... He's just like, like... stop calling them cool. And that's what I'm saying is so interesting about the... About the criticism of this time. It was like, everybody's like, stop calling them cool. Just mm-hmm. stop saying that they're cool. <laughs> and it's, it's weird. Like, That's strange, you know? I mean, when I kind of get it. You're allowed to praise the Rolling Stones, but only because that happened years ago. Right. Like, they're not, re- they're, their stardom isn't up for question anymore. 
it's uh, it's the same thing. He's questioning like the religiosity yeah, aspect, yeah. but it sounds a lot like religion right, to me. Right, exactly. Because if you're a new religion, you're a cult. But if you're the one of the old ones, you're right, in. You're in, yeah, exactly. Exa- which is very fun. That's what I'm saying. Like this kind of, I've, I went back and read a lot of these Pitchfork reviews. This one is just one that really stands out. But I read a lot of the old Pitchfork reviews of like some of my favorite albums of the time, and it's always like this. It's always like. Yeah, they're they're really they're really popular right now. They're people really like them. Do they deserve it? Not necessarily, but this this album fucking rocks. <laughs> and it's like what? Why you got to do all the extra what? shit? We don't need the extra shit. Just fucking say it. And like all these albums had such like high ratings, you know. So it's like it's kind of weird. It's very interesting. That might just be like a pitchfork thing, but I don't think so. I think probably other critics that work for non-commercial or like non-mainstream publications were doing the exact same thing but it was it's very interesting following the commercial and critical success of white blood cells and is this it 2001 and 2002 saw the release of commercially successful albums by the hives the vines and black rebel motorcycle club People from here and across the pond were praising the stripped-down compositional styles of these bands and viewed them as a necessary link between Rock's history and Rock's future. By the fall of 2002, these bands were being tagged by the media as the saviors of rock and roll, as the review just talked about. So much so that Rolling Stone magazine put the vines of all people, the vines, who like didn't survive this period, the vines on their September 2002 cover, with the headline, Rock is Back. Okay. You see, the biggest difference between the garage rock revival bands and the new metal, rap rock, and pop punk bands that were also big at the time is that the music of the garage rock revival bands was highly accessible to all kinds of audiences and they were critical darlings. They crossed that barrier where, like, if you're a mainstream artist, you're shit, right? Like, nobody could say that these people were shit. And all the critics were lauding them pretty much, but also like everybody was listening to them. So they can't be cool. They, but like they could. <laughs> it's, it's like a very strange thing. Like it's very particular. These albums were getting extremely high ratings on Pitchfork, as I just said. Which, if you've been reading Pitchfork for as long as I have, you know that that's very difficult. They are being praised and celebrated in all of the rock magazines here in the United States, as well as all of the music magazines. Not even just for rock, but just music in general in England and Europe. The critics love them, but so did your mom, probably. (laughs) And I think what made them so easy to love is that it was dark without being depressing. It was fun, but it also wasn't straight up dance music. And it had a kind of rock and roll edge that seemed dangerous and a little seedy, but also wasn't actually dangerous and seedy. These guys weren't going to beat your ass for some little infraction or harass your girlfriend, though I'm sure that did happen a lot. But they might invite you to come do a little cocaine in the green room of the club (laughs) and ask you about your family while they're cutting lines. (laughs) (laughs) After the initial successes of the Shrokes, the White Stripes, the Hives, and everyone else I've already mentioned, a cavalcade of big record deals came pouring in for many of the other bands I mentioned above. And the era really took hold. And many of these bands also, it should be noted, a lot of them were like based in New York City, right? Like the center, New York City was like the center of this scene, right? Bands like the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, the Killers even back then, Block Party, the Libertines, TV on the Radio, the National, and of course the Arctic Monkeys, 
all achieve varying degrees of commercial success, with some even crossing over into the pop realm. I'm thinking specifically of the Killers, obviously. Mm -hmm. They crossed over. Between 2002 and 2013, the garage rock revival era, later also dubbed the Indie Sleaze era by a content creator and producer named Olivia in 2021, achieved widespread commercial success and gave birth to a whole new subculture that I'm hesitant to call a subculture since it was so well-known and so mainstream in and of itself. Are we about to segue into what that subculture <laughs> yeah, is? Okay. Are. Cause I mean, I think I know what it is. You think you know what it is? I mean, yeah. I think this goes back to a conversation that you and I have had many times, but when you think of the conception of Brooklyn, right? Yes. This is, this is the time. This is it, right? Yeah. When we were growing up, Brooklyn was like hard hip hop projects mm-hmm. Or like old New York Italian or Mm -hmm. old New York Jewish families. Only those two things, actually. Yeah, it was just it was that, right? It was like ethnic white. It was Jay Z or or my family, pretty much. Yeah, (laughs) and then all of a sudden, around the mid two thousands, you start to think of Brooklyn as like oh, hipsters, (laughs) and it's like that happened within a five to ten year span of our life. So quickly, it went from scary Brooklyn, don't get off the subway there, Mm -hmm. to oh my my brother's friend has an apartment in, in Brooklyn. Williamsburg. Yeah, it's like, specifically in Williamsburg. And it's cool. Yeah. And everyone there is cool. And yeah. like, this is completely the same thing. Oh right? yeah, this is all connected. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Hipster but basically, Brooklyn. just I didn't put this in this section, but basically, so is this it and white blood cells come out in 2001? By 2003, a guy in Williamsburg, an author who was like living in Williamsburg, came out with the hipster handbook. Ah. So it happened so quick. And this yeah. is without like m- big social media, right? We only had MySpace at that time. That was the MySpace years? Yeah. 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 We only had MySpace at that time. Happened so freaking quick. So like 2000, that's a two quick year turnaround. turnover. Yeah. So quick. You know, it just, it, everybody was like, okay, we're going to jump on this thing. And they did. Also the book Stuff White People Like. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. That came out like not too, not too yeah, long Yeah, it was like 2006 that. or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And that was essentially just like hipster, like stuff hipsters totally, like. Totally, totally. So yeah, the hipster subculture emerging at the same time as this era in music. Yeah. They were kind of like coming, they were kind of happening together. So part three is about quote unquote indie sleaze, which... Is not indie sleaze is not necessarily. I just want to be clear. Is not necessarily referring to the music, right? The music is part of it, um, and gr- the garage rock revival is kind of like the catalyst for all of this. But it wasn't just people like the Strokes and the White Stripes. There were other people who are like part of this like scene. So I'm thinking of Santa Gold, Bat for Lashes. There's other MIA was also like mm. in this for that period. So it's not just garage rock that was like popular in the indie sleaze era. It was a part of it. And like I said, also a catalyst for like how much this shit blew up, basically. So initially, I thought this episode was going to be just about the music of the time period, which I certainly like if podcasts were allowed to play clips of songs and things, I would love to like go into that more and talk about that more. And I will provide a link to a Spotify playlist that I have created for this episode. But because we can't do that, I think, you know, I'm going to focus on this part of it because I can't play the clips for y'all, which I wish I could, but we would be suitable for a lot of money. So (laughs) maybe when we can, we'll revisit that. But as I was diving into all of this, 
I realized that the music and the ethos it brought with it gave rise to like the modern hipster era as we era as we were just talking about. I'm not sure why, but like before doing this, I didn't make the explicit connection between the two, but they are directly connected. What's interesting about the garage rock revival period is that it kind of brought the idea of something being quote unquote indie and music being quote unquote indie rock to mainstream audiences. Maybe you older true music heads out there were using the term indie before this, but for a lot of us, especially those of us coming of age in the early aughts, indie quote unquote, the music, the style, the attitude became almost as ubiquitous as hip hop or pop. And it stayed that way for a while. And I think I would argue that it probably still is that way for yeah. for whatever it's worth. Like there, like I said, the, listening to music now is such a different experience for people. So it's hard to compare the two. When we're talking about indie sleaze and for the purposes of this podcast, the rise of the modern hipster era, we're talking about not just the rise in popularity of these garage rock re- revival bands, but also the culture that was constructed around their arrival onto the scene. A bunch of articles have been published in the last year and a half on the subject because supposedly the style of indie sleaze is like making a comeback, (laughs) but also like a lot of, there's like a lot of articles debunking that Mm -hmm. idea and it's for reasons that I'll talk about in a second. So I'm going to use them to help define the zeitgeist of the era and the scene. In an article in Days, writer Daniel Rogers described the style and sense of indie sleaze like this. Grubby, maximalist, and performatively vintage, the indie sleaze movement coincided with the height of MySpace and the entree of Tumblr. Its proponents championed a hyperactive aesthetic, pulling from the 80s as much as they did 90s grunge, capturing all the hedonism with spontaneous and provocative flash photography. It was a mishmash buffet of chucking, smearing, and clashing, and its lodestone was American apparel. (laughs) (laughs) Similarly, an article written by Samantha Maxwell in Paste about frozen yogurt shops, which were also super popular at this time period. We should have a whole fucking episode about the Froyo explosion. But like, weirdly, like this article is, it's so crazy that this article also talks about indie sleeves. The way she brought them together was very interesting. But the main subject of the article was, was about frozen yogurt shops. She describes indie sleeves by saying, it felt like a reaction to the early years of Obama's presidency. The economy may have crashed, but there was still a sense of sparkling optimism in the mm, air. Okay. Which she also like compares to yogurt shop. It's just yeah. like a funny article. You should look it up. Smith yeah. and Maxwell and Pace. It's very funny. Okay. To take that through line a little further, Olivia, the content creator I mentioned before, said this about the era in a recent interview with NME. It felt chaotic, and it also felt like people from different scenes were coming together. There were a lot of different cliques hanging out together and not really caring about just sticking with your scene. A lot of it was about being spontaneous and meeting new people and trying to have new experiences. It was pre-2008 recession and we didn't know how bad the housing crisis was going to get or how certain things would unfold in politics. There was a sense of optimism. People say it was nihilistic, but I don't actually agree. There was this debauchery and decadence, but people still cared. Yeah, I don't think of it as nihilistic at all. I think yeah. of it as, when I think of hipsters, I think of the, the there's an element of ennui. Totally, right? yeah, yeah. Because there's an intellectual mm-hmm. ness to all of it. But at the same time, 
you're going to be a lot more respectful of certain things yes. that people would not have been 20 years ago yes. in a variety of scenes. You're going to like have the language of politics in a way that totally right so, yeah you care you did care a you lot about shit people cared a lot and you exercise that and unfortunately the only way that we can which is through our consumption and yes. so you're like oh i'm only buy at thrift stores yes. and all that, which like shit that i still do yeah not to be a part of a scene but you know same idea and isn't it and it's funny because when i think of like the kind of switch that a lot of us had between like being so heavily involved with the punk scene, but then, like, kind of being between scenes and, like, also being, like, in this scene. It's, like, isn't that all the same shit? Like, yeah, the only way that you have to show that you care about something is through your consumption. And, like, punk was the same way in a lot of ways. And, like, we just pretend it's not that way. So I was, like, thinking about that, too. Like, yeah, you had to, like, buy the things that showed off that you were that thing, Yeah, you know? And that's the way that we, like handled all of it pretty much really the only difference is vibes totally totally different vibes just that totally different vibes there's like different drugs (laughs) different alcohol different vibes you know unlike the previous garage rock scene of the 1960s and 1970s as we're talking about right now indie sleeves had a distinct style and sense that was completely different from other popular trends of the time Actually, it's, like, really hard for me now to think of what those trends were because by the time the Garage Rock Revival era was coming to a close, the indie sleaze style had saturated into the mainstream to the point where it felt like that was the only real trend. Many of the fashion elements of this time are what we attribute to hipster culture then, and some of these choices persist into hipster culture now, though I would argue that hipster culture technically doesn't exist, though people really try to make it seem like it does. Yeah, culture is hard to say because it's yeah. more just fashion now, isn't no, it? No, yeah, it's, it's just, just like... It, actually, it's more just like vibes now. <laughs> <laughs> like everything else. <laughs> like there's no like distinct thing. It's just like, mm. what are the vibes? Back then, everyone kind of dressed like they didn't give a shit, even though they cared deeply about what they looked like. And I just feel like that's kind of continued in different ways throughout the last decade. That's why like I see the people who are like, no, there's no, gr- there's no like Indie Sleaze revival. Like there's no like, it's not coming back. It's just like stayed mm-hmm. this entire time because everyone dressed like shit. And, like, they don't give a shit. (laughs) So, like, it's never, like, stopped, you know? In an article that is mostly a profile of Mark Hunter, who is also known as the Cobra Snake Brother, you probably don't know who this guy is, but he was a very well-known, very sought-out online photographer who, like, went around to all the shows and parties in New York and basically, like, documented this whole entire period on his blog. So, like, you you could go to a party in New York. Like, obviously not me. I was in South Florida. But, like, people could go to a party in New York... And if they got their picture taken by the cobra snake, they could, like, go on his blog the next day and it would be there. And it was, like, mm. kind of a sign of, like, Coolness, status. Like, yeah, yeah like, in. cool status. Like, you're in. So, in this article, it's, like, basically a profile of him, as I said. Vogue and Hunter describe the style of the period like this. American apparel, once again. Skinny jeans, V-neck cuts, Striped shirts, chunky gold jewelry, and cropped motorcycle jackets abound, as do fitted tees with ironic slogans such as, this is not a photo opportunity. This was the era of statement tights, colored fishnet or floral, but almost always ripped, and statement frames, Ray-Ban wayfarers, shutter shades, and even glasses without lenses. The overarching theme was rock and roll energy, Hunter says, 
Coming to a party half put together was more exciting than a fully fully snatched look. (laughs) Hair was shaggy and disheveled. Bangs were side-swept and sweaty. And eyeliner was heavy, smudged, and black. The Wikipedia entry for Indie Sleeves actually has a longer list that's culled from multiple sources, including some of the articles I mentioned. And when I say longer list, I mean a longer list of like style elements, right? So here's the list that Wikipedia has. It's pretty long. Clothes, including metallic bodysuits, studded Lita boots manufactured by shoe company Jeffrey Campbell, lame leggings, chokers, shutter shades, Ballet flats, keffia, remember that whole style? The, what was keffia? The the scarf that oh. you would wear with like the little shrings, like people were really oh, into yeah. it. Oh yeah, okay, sure. Chunky gold jewelry, striped shirts, lensless glasses, sheer tops, big belts, plaid pants, cardigans, A-line skirts, tennis skirts, high top converse sneakers, low or layered na- necklaces, cropped leather jackets, fedoras, motorcycle bags, Stockings with shorts. Man, that was... Big time. I hope that look never comes back. (laughs) Wired headphones, band t-shirts, and skinny jeans, as well as other elements such as galaxy prints, Aztec prints, sideswept bangs, waif-thin bodies, recession roots, which they're referring to like, you can't, you don't have enough money to like re-dye your hair so the roots grow out. Nice. Smudged eyeliner and mascara, amateur flash photography, and torn clothing. And again, of course, American Apparel was influential on the development of indie sleaze, as the Vogue article pointed out. Wikipedia also mentions the popular accessories of the time period. (laughs) Polaroid cameras, cigarettes, and drugs. (laughs) Yeah. Usually, (laughs) Usually designer drugs like cocaine, LSD, and MDMA. Do they have that a, was the look. a beer mention on there? They don't, but we know what it is. PBR, Paps Lou Reed, maybe. PBR, which really bothered me at the time because <laughs> I started drinking PBR as a 17-year-old. Before it was cool? Yeah. Now you sound like I know, now people. I sound like one of these people. It's so annoying. We worked so hard to get our 30 racks of PBR, and then you find out a few years later that yeah, everybody's drinking everybody's it in Brooklyn. Everybody's fucking drinking it, and they're charging five fucking dollars yeah, for it's it. It's crazy because that's like that, a third of a 30. Yeah, that shit was yeah. insane. Yeah, yep. the PB, the PBR phenomenon, crazy. They should, that should be studied in terms of like I'm marketing. Sure someone's looking into it, yeah, right? In terms of like marketing and PR, that really needs to be studied. So yeah, that was like the you know those are that's a long list of things, but like basically you know people put this shit together in random variations and like you didn't look like super overdone. Not Nobody ever all. looked. I don't remember anybody ever like dressing nice for anything. Yeah. We were kind of just like, I mean, for me, this was like a little bit more difficult. Like there was no, American Apparel, you guys did not have plus sizes. So I'm just going to put that out there. The whole scene was like very fat phobic. That's like the most negative thing I can say about it, to be honest. I think really thin people. Yeah. The most negative thing I can say about it is that, yeah, it was like super fat phobic and nobody gave a shit that it was like super fat phobic. But that was the time too. Like it was the... It was the aughts. I'm not trying to excuse it, but in the aughts, is like nobody gave a shit, you Mm -hmm. know? I read an article that said, like, the body positivity movement was probably in response partially to indie sleeves, which I found very... The connections they were making, like, made sense, but I'm not... I didn't quote it or anything like that because I just... I feel like that needs to be explored a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, there's also... I don't think that's true because the body positivity movement was not really started by white women. Mm-hmm. And the majority of people who were involved with indie sleeves were, like, white people. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, so... too. That's, like, another element of <laughs> yeah. this is that, you know, it's a... I think of it as a white 
movement. Yeah, Not that, it is. Yeah. Of course, all the people were white, but <clears throat> yeah. When I consider it, I know exact. I know exactly the guy I'm thinking of. Yeah, there's you know? a guy, yeah. and you have it in your mind. You he has a mustache. I mean? He has skinny jeans. Yeah. He has like a big sweater. Yes, yeah. a beanie maybe. Yeah. That guy. And he's got like one of those messenger bags mm-hmm. that were popular at the time. And he's going to do whatever his job is. He's got a job. Know. Yeah, he has a job at like a coffee shop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. And like he curates a playlist for the coffee shop. Yeah, and it's like all the strokes and stuff but yeah it was it was a weird time like i definitely in any scene that i've been a part of including you know when i was like really heavy into punk i've never been the type of person that like dressed for the scene yeah you don't need i didn't have i never had that experience (laughs) but like a lot of people do you know and like they really put a lot of effort into it and like this time period in particular people were really putting a lot of effort into it yeah like, really, really. I remember certainly some of the punk shows that I have been to in various stages of my life. I have had, like, a moment of anxiety before leaving where I'm like, well, I don't think I'm dressed punk enough. <laughs> yeah. Just wearing, I mean, like, yeah. a t-shirt. Do I, like, look cool enough for the show? I'm going to see the fucking Black Keys in the culture room in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Do I, like, look cool? This is, like, 2006. Do I, like, look cool enough to see the fucking Black Keys in the culture room in Fort Lauderdale, Florida? Like, nobody gives a fuck, yeah, nobody, you know? nobody cares. But, like, everybody thought it was, like, such a big deal. So, you know, aside from this kind of like part going into part four, aside from the fact that people think this era is coming back, which like, I don't necessarily think that this era is coming back. Like I said, I think it kind of stayed. It just just dispersed and now it's around. Yeah, it's just like around. Like all the teenagers that you see that are wearing like chunky feel of sneakers and like oversized jeans and stuff. I feel like that is just like a new iteration of this. Like... You don't want to look like you give too much of a shit, but, like, you definitely do. It's just the same thing. So, aside from that, like, I think it's really obvious that this particular moment in music and fashion was, like, it as far as long-lasting trends go. This was the last one before social media really, like, took over. And I don't know if we'll, like, ever experience a moment like this again. But beyond that... I also think it's really interesting to examine the garage rock revival era and the indie sleaze era from the lens of the period. The recession was on the verge of happening and then it did happen. Social media was barely a thing and then it became a huge thing. The distribution of music was changing and about to change in a big way and then it did. High fashion was always inaccessible and too expensive. And then the things that were being touted as high fashion became easier and easier to replicate on the cheap. It was an era that was like teetering on the edge of multiple edges. (laughs) And it was mostly run, popularized, and determined by young people. Mm -hmm. Young people were at the forefront of the Garage Rock Revival era and the Indie Sleaze era. As I pointed out, you know, we were watching the Arctic Monkeys when we were 18. They were on TV when they were like 21 or 22. These are our peers yeah. at this point, you know? When I think of it like this, it feels like the last era where young people were really acting like young people in the sense that they were experimenting, getting into trouble, and like doing whatever the hell they wanted all the time. Looking back, you can see that it was also mitigated by its own ethos and expectations and problems, some of which we talked about. It was mostly white people doing it. It was mostly thin people who were, like, the forefront of this. There was, like, a liberatory a liberatory freedom there that 
I don't think has existed since then because we can't do that now, mm-hmm. right? Even though, yeah, like Cobra Snake and these other guys were like at these parties documenting what was going on. There was definitely like photography happening. It wasn't like having a you know a camera on your phone where you could document every moment, and you weren't scared to have that moment documented. There sure. was no like nobody was anxious about what was going to show up on social media the next day that was a panic that was just emerging yes was the idea it was brand new in 2013 you had to go to like a a fucking workshop Mm -hmm. with like administrators that are going to tell you Mm -hmm. make sure you don't post something on social media you don't want there Yeah, yeah whatever yeah that was like a brand new thing and i think that this was like the last moment of like like that kind of freedom as a kid that was like yeah technology played a big role in it but not the kind of technology that we have now, you know? You didn't have... You weren't distracted by, like, TikTok. If you wanted to, like, go and see the Cobra Snakes blog, you had to, like, go home to your house and get on the computer. Yeah. You know? If you wanted to get on your Tumblr, you had to, like, be on your computer. If you wanted to get on MySpace, you had to be on your computer. There was a... In the same way that we were, like, super connected to the music of the period, we were, like, kind of disconnected from the technology of the time. Where we don't have that, we're we're strapped to it now all the time. Yeah, I think that when I recall the criticisms of this group of people, hipsters and mm-hmm. whatnot, the criticisms are the same criticisms that are hurled at young kids now. Remember them being like, "Oh, they're always on their t- they're always on their Tumblr, yeah. Yeah, all that shit." Yeah. And to look at it now, it's so quaint because like. People they really, really weren't. weren't. <laughs> you had to go Maybe to your like laptop. 45 minutes a day or yeah. something. And you had like a digital camera that you would yeah. bring around and like you had to charge it and all yeah. this shit. And um, worry about memory. Oh God, you had to, that memory card. Yeah, you had to upload it to card. your computer. Mm-hmm. And then I don't even know what we did with those photos. They just ended up in a file or printed. Sometimes yeah. we printed them Print if we them had out. money. Maybe put them on a Facebook album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was definitely not so technologically burdened as it is now. Yeah. And, um, it, and that makes it less about show because totally. everything is now the simulacrum. Yeah. Whereas then, yes, you were dressing in a way that appealed to group, whatever pressures or perceived yeah. group pressures, but ultimately not you were doing way. it for yourself. Yeah. It wasn't in the same way. It wasn't in the same way. No, of course not. Nothing will ever it's, be in the same no, way. No, I won't. I mean, I, Sound like such an old person, but we like are old. we are old, yeah. Well, we are old, but I think I mean I think what most attracts me to it is just that idea that it was something like I said it was like ruled by young people. Mm-hmm. They produced it, you know. Yeah. They made the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't some trend that was like being pumped to you from fucking algorithms PR agents and, and algorithms yeah. and like. It wasn't coming up on your TikTok feed and your Instagram feed. Like, you had to actively seek this shit out. Yeah. If you wanted to be part of it. And, like, that is very interesting to me when you compare it to, like, now where everybody's life is ruled by the fucking algorithm. Mm -hmm. We talk about these scenes being, like, do-it-yourself. That was, like, the last one. Yep. That was the last DIY scene. Yeah. At least that I can think of, and, and maybe something will happen in the future. Yeah, I'm sure something will. There's going to be ebbs and flows, yeah. but for our lifetime, this was an emergent culture and a culture that became mainstream, like, before our eyes. Totally. And I don't, maybe it's because we're old and out of touch, but I don't see that happening in the same way. There way. isn't one. We would, because we, we're still young enough to be in touch with that. 
the culture is... And we is, don't have kids, so we're not tired. like 19-year-olds <laughs> who want to be on Too Hot to Handle. That's like our culture. Yeah, <laughs> which is not a culture. <laughs> at least... Okay, so like that's the thing. Like At least Indie Sleeves like, was actually producing art and media. Yeah. You know? Like, in a big way. In a really big way. And good art and media. media. Art and media that still like has resonance now. You can listen to a TV on the radio album and be like, this still fucking makes sense. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we just don't have that. Like, what are you going to do? Like, listen to... Megan Trainer's mother in like ten years probably not. Nobody's gonna. That's a TikTok song. Nobody's gonna remember who that is. Unfortunately, I'm on Twitter too much, so (laughs) like you know. But yeah, like nobody's gonna listen to that in ten years. Nobody's gonna give a shit. So I don't know. It's it's very interesting. Like that guy said to think about it through the lens of like the time period where I, I could totally see people like kind of being scared of it because. Or, like, kind of, like, being weary of it or whatever. Because, yeah, like, young people, that was it. Like, that was our... We were... The language that young people are using right now to, like, describe themselves and to, like, describe things that they like, it was created in that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. You know? (laughs) Like, it's kind of insane to think about, like, the connection between then and now. All this... It became... it It blossomed and, like, blasted into the mainstream so hard that... I'm sure kids don't even consider those bands indie mm-hmm. in any way. They consider anymore. it like classic rock. They probably would say that. <laughs> that now that is sad. It's like I like old music. I like old music, and then yeah. they say, "Yeah, I like the Strokes," and yeah. you're like, "Oh fuck, <laughs> the Strokes are still around, you guys." Yeah. But yeah, no, they you know they don't that term like whatever indie is to them, it doesn't have the same resonance. There's no indie anymore because yeah. it's. There's, I mean, you can't have that anymore. Mm, yeah. Not in the same way. Well, I mean, this is great, brother. I think I learned a lot Thank from you. this little trip down memory lane. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. I mean, we'll probably revisit some of the stuff that was involved in this, like, later I already on. have, like, ideas. You got ideas, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking hipster comedians. Oh, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff to, to get into with this. Just particular there were like particular trends that are like embarrassing to think of now that we like let people just like engage with these trends so you know it's like every trend right in hindsight so many of not them. All not, them not all of them you know, but like so many of them like i'm i'm still to this day you know i don't give a shit what people say i'm still grateful for the invention of the skinny jean to this day uh, yeah why not yeah because we both still jeans. wear them yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gen Zers will be it like, it makes sense for my fucking, fucking body, okay? Why not? I'm not gonna wear parachute pants. I'm, yeah, I can't wear baggy ass jeans. I'm an look adult. Ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> you wearing that? But yeah, there's like some things that I'm very happy exist now. You yeah, know? I agree. So yeah, I mean, we'll we'll continue to explore this, but I'm glad that we got. This is like the foundation. This is yeah, like a we're base level. The foundation, you yeah. freaks. And don't forget, there will be a Spotify playlist link in the show notes and i'll also put it you know in our social media stuff too so that you can you can listen you can go down memory lane yourself i can't wait to listen to it i'm yeah. very excited yeah there's some nice there's some i picked out some good ones i'm stoked yeah i'm stoked thank you guys for listening join our patreon get after it let's go <laughs>